Today is a special 895 Fest edition of Americana One. Our special guest today, Jason Ringenberg. When I first got to Nashville in July of that year of 81, I was surprised. I really expected this mythical place where every single corner had a, had a club and all this cool stuff was happening and it was quite sleepy. It was a sleepy town. The band got gigantic record contracts in the 80s, huge deals, and we were never that kind of band. We weren't really a commercial kind of viable band. You couldn't put us next to Journey on the radio and have that work. John the Baptist heard one voice that guided him. The National Park Service called me up to do a residency at Sequoia National Park, and they said, we're going to put you up in the mountains. We want you to wander around the mountains and write songs. The other ones, they came one after another, and there was a, a linear progression to it. This came out of nowhere, and without this record, I, I, I probably wouldn't be in the business at this point. Welcome to Americana One. This is Ken Paulson. We are at the 895 Fest, the inaugural music festival of uh, WMOT, which is based in Murfreesboro and serves, I don't know, about three states, so a lot of pressure on this interview. We are delighted to welcome Jason Ringenberg. Good to see you. My pleasure. I have, uh, have known and admired your work for a long time through your many incarnations. Uh, and I, I'm so pleased you're back to recording as a, as a solo artist. It's a great new record. I, I do have to ask, do you sometimes feel like you're the George Washington of Americana? <laughs> he does a better statue than I would do, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but all the talk about Americana uh, and Roots Rock, I mean, you were there and you ignited much of that. You can't count the number of people who, who have cited Jason and the Scorchers as pivotal influences. Did you know when that cowpunk band emerged um, that you were do doing something that really hadn't been done before? I don't know if we thought in those terms, but I, I did think that we all knew that we had something special. Yeah, we knew there was a chemistry with that band that was you know, immediate and it just hit people one way or the other, good and bad. What year would the Scorchers have first hit a stage? Uh, we did our first show early August of uh, 1981. It was opening for R.E.M. at a club called Cantrell's in Nashville. And uh, it was a completely different band. It was called Jason and the Nashville Scorchers, but Jeff and Warner and Perry weren't in that band. The second gig was just a week later opening for Carl Perkins at Vanderbilt University. Oh, man. Because the bass player was the concert promoter. <laughs> so Good for that move. concert, so I learned early, really quickly. Wow, connections matter in the music business. And uh, and was it pretty much a following right away? The Scorchers, once the band coalesced, those two with two, those two shows, Jeff Johnson, who was a real scene maker, real scenester, and a great musician, saw those shows and met, and he said, "I want to help you. I know this band is just a thrown together thing, so I'll help you." So he brought in Warner, and then Warner brought in Perry, and uh, that was the band. And once we started playing, it was immediate. We were, we were selling out rooms almost immediately. And were a lot of those dates in Nashville? Yeah, Middle Tennessee. In fact, Murfreesboro was, we really cut our teeth here at a place called KO Jams. It was a little place in the square. And uh, that's where that band sort of learned really how to, what we were. And that's where we were first started selling out rooms. Where did you play on Lower Broad? 
We never played on Lower Broad. We right. played Cantrell's. Okay. Yeah, that's where that was our gig in the in those days of the band until we had moved up to Exodent. And the scene was not that vibrant in the early '80s. I wouldn't think I was. I wasn't here, but uh, I mean, it certainly wasn't what it is today. Oh, you would never recognize it if you you know were to time travel from '81 to to now. Um, when I first got to Nashville in July of that year of '81, I was surprised. I really expected this mythical place where every single corner had a had a club and all this cool stuff was happening and. It was quite sleepy. It was a sleepy town. And, um, you know, you had the country music world, which was a kind of a, if an artist got to a quarter million, they were a huge artist in those days in, in country music. The, the rock and roll scene was so small, very dedicated, and everyone was really committed, but it was very small. So there was only a few places to play. And somehow, by a quirk of fate or the grace of God, my apartment that I got, before I knew this, was right behind Cantrell's, the only <laughs> original music club in Nashville at the wow. time. It was right, I, I could see out my window at Cantrell's. So that's where I hung out, and that's where I started, you know, the, the whole process. I, uh, I think right now we ought to have the audience hear a little bit of what made Jason and the Scorchers magical. Um, I'd like to suggest a Dylan cover. That's a good idea. This was our first single, our first MTV sort of song. It's called Absolutely Sweet Marie. Jason and the Scorchers, a taste of uh, what a vibrant rock and roll band that really was. Uh, and uh, did Cowpunk, that name, exist before you guys began getting tagged with that? Um, a Texas journalist tagged us with that, a guy named Rob Patterson. He did it in a magazine called CMJ, Country, uh, College Media Journal. And um, he was the first guy that said, you know, country punk. This band is country punk. That's what this band is. And so I think we were the first, but there may be L.A. bands that would dispute that, maybe, you know, uh, Lone Justice and the Blasters and folks like that. So we can't lay claim to it, but that's where the first place I saw it. Yeah, pretty good company. Uh, we want to move on to the, the rest of your rich career, but I, I have to believe that, I mean, it feels good, I'm sure, to be credited with a lot of the music we enjoy today and inspiring others, but you had to want more record sales than you had. Well, that's always been a source of frustration, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. The band got gigantic record contracts in the 80s, huge deals, and we were never that kind of band. We weren't really a commercial kind of viable band. You couldn't put us next to Journey on the radio and have that work. Um, so that, that was always a source of tension, you know, always a source of frustration and complexity that we had to deal with in the 80s. Well, you seem to be paying... Uh paying tribute to one of your major influences with a song on the, on the new album called God Bless the Ramones. Am I reading that right? Yeah. Um, the first real tour we did outside of uh, small venues, you know, we were playing all over the South and the Midwest and up the East Coast in 80, 81, or 81, 82, 83. But the first real tour in big venues was opening for the Ramones in Texas in 1982. And... Uh, 
it was, we learned more from that tour than probably anything we ever did. Good things? Before or bad. Good and <laughs> lessons, let's just yeah. say that. <laughs> Some very important lessons. I um, had the privilege to interview the Ramones in 1978, and it was, I, they were very cool and very cartoon-like. I mean, they were, you know, Dee Dee was exactly what you figured Dee Dee would be. They had just come from a trip to Disneyland or Disney World, and they, oh, that's all I could talk about. They were very excited about that, so uh, that was just a rush. And uh, and then I went to see them that night and uh, and lost most of my hearing, which I is, it, I've never heard anything like that, but it was it was phenomenal. Uh, it's amazing well, they did all that with one guitar and one bass. I know. You know, and the backbeat wasn't, it wasn't like a Keith Moon drummer, you know, I mean, um, it was, you know, a one three drummer, you know, on those, on those beats. So he wasn't filling a lot of space. It was yeah. all, all Dee Dee and, and Johnny did all that work. Yeah, phenomenal. It is incredible. Let's hear this tribute to the Ramones. We said yes, and away we went with $50 past due rent. We drove to Beaumont, Texas first, where college punks would quench their thirst on bands like Killing Joke and Black Flag and bartenders all in drag. God bless the Ramones. They never made much money. Most folks never heard of them or thought that they were funny. God bless the Ramones. They never sold their souls. The U.S. corporate radio and all that it controls. God bless the Ramones. Anybody can share that sentiment. Um, and it's actually kind of cool they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, I'm not sure I ever saw that happen. There's still hope for Jason and the Scorchers. Because, because <laughs> That's a long shot there, brother. <laughs> That's a long shot. So then you go in an entirely new direction with Farmer Jason, which, I mean, you turn out to be three-year-old's best friend. How did, how did that come about? Well, in uh, 2000, um, 2000, I've got my dates mixed up. In 1997, uh, I married Susie, my wife now, of over 20 years, and we had Addie Rose, my second daughter, and then Camille followed really quickly after that. So we had this young family, and they were listening to their kind of music, like Tara Time and, and Barney and things like that, and um, they would listen to the same song over and over again all day, all day. And I was thinking, gee, Manetli, <laughs> you know, we got to listen to this stuff. Maybe I'll make my own record like this. And so I did it for, purely for fun, really. It was a fun thing. And now, you know, 20 years later, I'm, st I'm still doing it. And that includes live appearances? Yeah, I, I play all the time as Farmer Jason, yes. It's, uh, it's got to be really rewarding. And uh, do you have grandkids yet? Not yet, no. I haven't crossed that bridge yet. Yeah, I'm Look quite, forward to it. I wasn't doing the math about how old your kids would be. but uh, are, are you a grandfather? Are you? I am. I am. I am? What do you have for grandkids? Uh, two girls and two boys, and uh, they're all being raised right in the school of rock and roll. And, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, Amen. And Farmer Jason albums. Uh, so I, uh, I think you ought to put out a covers album. Just Farmer Jason covers. <laughs> well, of, of the Ramones and... That's an uh, idea. Other, th other, other songs that the next generation absolutely needs to hear. You know? mm, maybe so. Maybe so. Um, well, I want to play a song from uh, the canon of Farmer Jason. Those of you who are listening at home, uh, tell the kids to come in the room. Their, their lives about to change. Uh, what shall we play today? Uh, this is the song from. Uh, there's two or three songs that sort of 
coalesce the farmer Jason world, and this certainly would be one of those. This is called Punk Rock Skunk. I'm seeing a theme here throughout, throughout your career. There you go. Here's Punk Rock Skunk. I have a leather jacket, my jeans are full of holes, and if I lived in England, I'd be on the dole. Today I told my barber I wanted a mohawk. He was so freaked out, he couldn't even talk. I'm a punk. 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 So let's move ahead and uh, talk about Jason today. I, uh, I was concerned about you. There weren't records for a while. Where were you? What were you doing? Well, I was still working with Farmer Jason pretty heavy all those years, but it was in a different circuit, libraries and schools. and um, It wasn't really a recording act thing for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, I was raising a family, and I was working jobs and just doing what, you know, what fathers do. That's to take care of your, your family. Um, and then in 2017, the, United, the National Park Service called me up to do a residency at Sequoia National Park. And they said, we're going to put you up in the mountains. We want you to wander around the mountains and write songs and do a few shows. And so that's what I did. <laughs> and the songs came out needing to be heard, so I decided to make a record. Wow. Stand Tall is that record. Were you asked to write songs about your experience there? Uh, interestingly, no. Huh. I expected them to, to want to have me write about the Sequoias. I did write some about that, but they didn't expect me to do that. They didn't expect ownership of the songs, or they didn't expect me to make a record and give to them about, about the National Park. Uh, you know, that harkens back, as I'm sure you know, to the Woody Guthrie experience where, you know, he was... Right. He was paid to to write about uh, the West and uh, produce some phenomenal records yeah. there. Greg and Grand Cruelly Dam came out of that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. So, is this something you had to apply for? Was there, did I miss this ad? That <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was one of my friends playing a, tr playing a trick on me. Someone called me out of the blue from the Park Service, and uh, you know, they they just made their pitch, and I you know I didn't I didn't try for it. No. It was just something that fell in my lap. And here I am today because of it. And it's, it, did, it did change my life. There's no question Stan Tall has changed my life. The experience of doing that has opened up a whole different world for me. And so this album is set apart from the rest of your body of work? In certain ways, yeah. Certainly because it's... The other ones, they came one after another and there was a, a linear progression to it. This came out of nowhere. And... Without this record, I, I, I probably wouldn't be in the business at this point, huh. well, outside of this occasional Farmer Jason show. Oh, we are grateful then. No, not, not, not as nearly as much as me, <laughs> I can promise you that. It's a, it's, it's a fine record, and as I say, overdue. And Thank you. If you go this long without another one, we're just going to get in touch with you. And <laughs> Offered to put me up in Murfreesboro yeah. to write <laughs> that's songs. Right, that's right. <laughs> we'll put you in the Red Roof Inn. <laughs> there you go. Get you a couple good weeks there. Yeah. Um, I've heard a lot about a lot of people talking about uh, John the Baptist, and uh, and uh, actually John, John the Baptist was a real humdinger, which is one of the great song titles of all time. Uh, where'd that come from? That came out of the Sequoia experience when I started thinking about. I was you know, wandering around the wilderness, and I, I just kept thinking of 
what an interesting character John the Baptist was. Um, you know, whether you're a believer or a non-believer or just into it for literature or into it as your faith, the Baptist was an amazing, amazing character. <laughs> you know, he was, he was a hippie. He was a revolutionary hippie at that. He, he, he offended all the establishment. Um, he wasn't into organized religion. Um, he had no ego. He, you know, he could have been called the Messiah, and he he turned it down. He turned the gig down <laughs> to give it, you know, to give it to his cousin, the rightful Messiah. And um, so, a, a character like that had to have a, a song written about him, coming from a modern perspective, from a rock and roll perspective. So that's what I did. Well, it's uh, we absolutely have to hear this song and. Uh, would people of great faith find this song inspiring or offensive? Well, that was a worry I had. I'm, I'm a believer myself. Um, and I was worried that it would because it, it, it pushes the boundaries. There's no question about that. But, you know, I've had a lot of really very fundamentalist Christian folks come up and, and compliment me for it and thank me for, for bringing that song into a different world than John the Baptist would normally inhabit. That character usually does not inhabit the kind of world I live in. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that. Terrific. Did my job. John the Baptist was a real humdinger. While down the road his cousin dear Was sowing hope and killing fear Yeah, John the Baptist was a real humdinger Touching souls like an old blues singer Wandering the hills of Galilee, living on the edge, wild and free. The go-to guy, the perfect ringer. Oh, John the Baptist was a real humdinger. It's been a real privilege to have Jason Ringenberg here. And uh, it is more than a bit ironic that this radio station that in our home radio station, WMOT, is built around what we now call Americana music, was probably once called alt-country, was probably once called roots rock. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's just Jason's music. And it's an honor to have you here and spend some time with you. Congratulations on the new record. Well, if I may just add one last little caveat. Uh, my first exposure hearing, um, or the first time hearing uh, the new record was, was on MOT. Oh, I was driving down the road, and we were checking mixes and checking things and checking the manufacturing every day, and I was listening. I turned on the radio, and, and um, uh, one of the songs from the record came on, and I thought I was listening to my CDR of it. <laughs> and then at the end of it, Jesse Scott said, and there's Jason Ringenberg's new record, you know, the Jimmy Rogers song, Jimmy Rogers' last, or um, Hobo Bill's Last Ride. And it was just a magical moment. I was like, I was listening to myself on the radio and didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you went top 10 at WMOT, and I'm sure the riches are rolling in now. There you go. Jason Ringenberg on Americana One. This is Ken Paulson. Thank you for listening. Please check out our podcast. This interview will last forever and ever, and it's free of charge. Tune in again next week. Our thanks to Erica Nalo for her always sterling production and to Dave Paulson for writing the theme music. This is Americana One. <laughs>